This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. So began every episode of the seminal 1930s radio series, The Shadow, looking at the seedy underbelly of crime. But criminal enterprises today aren't just an underbelly. They're a whole economy in their own right, spanning the globe, run as highly profitable international conglomerates, with diversified investments and enterprises, right down to legal divisions and private armies. And they run rings around law enforcement. The international organized crime networks we confront today are significantly different from criminal networks we confronted in the past. This is the man nicknamed the Merchant of Death. Flying weapons all across the world, including to Africa. Les, les Russes sont les bienvenus au Mali ici. Et le nord du Mali, le centre du Mali souffre aujourd'hui de l'insécurité. Combating transnational organized crime is a top priority for the Federal Bureau of Investigation and our international law enforcement partners. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Seth Table. I'm joined by Miles Johnson, award-winning investigative journalist and foreign correspondent for the Financial Times, whose new book is Chasing Shadows, a true story of drugs, war, and the secret world of international crime. Welcome to The Bunker, Miles. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, your book looks at the interweaving lives of three individuals against this sort of backdrop. Could you tell us a bit more about the three people who are at the centre of this book? So... We have Salvatore, who is an Italian mafia boss, but a mid-ranking one, and one who has sort of watched the families around him in Calabria, so a region which up until, you know, sort of like the 90s, wasn't really seen as a sort of leading player in Italian organized crime. It was very much in Sicily. And he was sort of born at a time when all the families around him are starting to get very rich and powerful, and his family is mid-ranking. And he wants to be great. He wants to make his family, you know, feared and powerful and wealthy. And so he decides to gamble everything to pull off this vast transatlantic cocaine deal. Mm -hmm. The next person we have is Jack Kelly. Jack Kelly is a veteran DEA agent. So, you know, the US or Drug Enforcement Administration, he has sort of cut his teeth you know, being effectively a street-level cop, you know, busting people on the streets of New York. And he is drafted into a DEA unit, which begins to go after effectively international supercriminals. And he gets pulled into this world of international intrigue. And then lastly, we have Mustafa Badaradin, who is a very shadowy character a master bomb maker born in Lebanon who from you know his late teens begins to pull off these spectacular terrorist attacks you know he is then affiliated with Hezbollah the Lebanese uh, terrorist and political movement and has this very remarkable terrorist career where for effectively 3 decades he manages to pull off increasingly audacious and bloody uh, attacks without ever being caught and as the book starts he is 
you know, now in middle age and has been dispatched to Syria during the civil war for his final mission. Um, these men are very different from very different places, but their lives become intertwined through the dirty money which is flowing through the international criminal economy. That's right. And you, you use these sort of intertwining lives to look at that whole system of criminal networks that's out there. Um, now, these have always been with us to some extent, but they have become a lot more professionalized, you might say, in recent years. So why is that? I think that's a fascinating point about this phenomenon in the sense that there are multiple factors at play here. You know, one of them is one which I think affects people's everyday lives, which is that there are now things available to you and me and also to international criminal organizations, capabilities effectively, which decades before would only be available to nation states. So things like encrypted communications, you know, spyware, access to effectively the legitimate economy, and even, you know, hiring the capabilities of former government professionals. Mm -hmm. You know, there are, there are crime organizations in Europe which have been known to contract, you know, experts in counter-surveillance and, you know, very sophisticated capabilities. And then there's a sort of broader point, which is that there is a sort of blurring where the criminal world and the legitimate world of business sort of meet. So you now have these sort of crime bosses who have become geopolitical players or even political figures um, and sometimes have the backing of nation states. And that muddies the waters significantly. And um, they thrive in a geopolitical moment like this, where you have an increasingly fragmented mm. global order. So, you know, a good example of that would be if Jenny Prigozhin in Russia, you know, who's now become a sort of household name, but is, you know, designated by the US government as a transnational criminal boss, mm. but is also a warlord, a businessman running effectively a shadow multinational sort of criminal empire. And the the money that holds that together, the financing of it is very much almost its own operation. I mean, it's not just that they are well funded. It's that uh, things like cryptocurrency help in sort of exchanging. They have different forms of barter economy in terms of, you know, drugs for guns and so forth. It, it's like its own economy in its own right. Absolutely. It's really, really important to not only look at the sort of stuff on the surface, which is especially fictional portrayals, you know, you have a sort of archetype of a crime boss, you know, he he starts out from nowhere, he rises to the top, you know, through his sort of ruthlessness and ambition. Um, he has lots of money and fast cars. And, you know, occasionally you'll see a logistical element like drugs being shipped or something like that. But there are a vast amount of other logistical choke points in running a transnational criminal organization, which require service providers. You know, it's if you want to buy a massive shipment of cocaine from Latin America and have it shipped into a port in Europe, for example, Rotterdam being the most obvious, then you don't just need to manage the side of shipping the drugs in the container, which is complex on its own, but you also have to figure out a way to pay your suppliers. Do you have to move vast amounts of money through sort of effectively a sort of shadow um, network? And that requires specialists. It requires people mm -hmm. who are expert in doing that. And that's part of part of this book is looking at effectively the, the, the small logistical details, which often go unnoticed. Your story very much focuses on the years sort of 2015 to 2016. Was that a particular turning point in all of this? 
To a certain extent, it was at first a coincidence in the sense that that was when a lot of the action was taking place. But as I started doing more research and more reporting and talking to more people, I started to think of that moment as a very interesting time. You know, if we were going to do a sort of perhaps a, a long history of the 20th century, we might maybe end it in around um, 2015, 2016, at a time when the sort of established global order, which had been up to that point under strain, starts to really fragment. And I think the Syria conflict, the Syrian civil war, was a fascinating turning point where you had the Western world, you know, with huge amounts of war fatigue following the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, reeling from the global financial crisis of 2008, and you know, a tyrant who is murdering his own population, and in which the West, West was reluctant to get involved. And of course, there is an element of state sponsorship in this as well, because uh, you have Russia stepping into the Syrian conflict, um, you know, halfway through on Assad's behalf. And of course, another major crisis from a year earlier, 2014, is the Crimea invasion, which of course was largely ignored across much of Europe in the grand scheme of things, but now seems more alive and well than ever. And so this whole development of private armies, of, of organized crime, the overlap between that, which very much you know, is a theme in the book, it's noticeable how it came into its own around then. Yes. I mean, it's a really interesting time when, especially after Crimea, you have this interesting fragmentation where you have regimes, some which are very large economies, which through sanctions, which was often a Western response to these, these incidents, they get cut off from the international financial system, sort of US dollar economy. And that effectively means that they have to start engaging in surreptitious criminal activity. You know, procurement networks, this could be anything from procurement networks working for Russian intelligence to, you know, people trying to traffic arms into conflicts in Africa. These are all intermingled and you start to have these very unlikely and strange alliances between sort of these actors who aren't necessarily ideologically aligned. You know, they might just be highly pragmatic. They're businessmen, criminal entrepreneurs who want to make money, but mm. you get these sort of interesting um, interesting connections. And it's really nothing new. I mean, in the 1980s, for example, you had Rhodesia uh, pre-79. You had the apartheid regime of South Africa into the 80s. You had up until 76 the, um, the regime in Mozambique, and they were forming a sort of shadow mini economy because they were all sanctioned, but they were trading amongst each other and trading on the black market. But that was something where we, we almost told ourselves it's a bookend on history, it won't happen again. And it keeps accelerating how it's happening, as you can see. Absolutely. And I think there are now ways in which people can run these sorts of businesses, businesses which were not possible before. And so now, you know, the biggest crime bosses in Europe the people who have, you know, become notorious for sort of ordering assassinations and, you know, shipping vast quantities of drugs and sort of illicit funds across borders, they're not based in Europe. They can run an empire from a smartphone and using encrypted messages and things which just weren't possible 20 years ago. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. There are some fascinating stories there about how particularly the uh, the American uh, investigator Jack starts Kelly. to unravel all of this. Yes. Mm. I mean, that's also an, you know, an amazing moment where... I, you know, as an outsider, I'm not, I'm not an American. I found it fascinating, you know, in the reporting for this book, I spoke to, you know, extensively to to Jack Kelly and also many of his colleagues who were working in US law enforcement in this fascinating moment where it was just after 9-11 and there was a huge response in the United States, you know, which is very well known where people felt there was an intelligence failure, there wasn't enough joined up work between different agencies and that allowed the perpetrators of the 9-11 attacks to slip through the net. And there was a lot of soul searching. And in the wake of that, in the subsequent years, there was a lot of legislation passed and things started to happen which had unexpected consequences. So you had, you know, the DEA was, in the words of, you know, the the boss of, uh, one of the bosses at the time there, you know, in the book, you know, this little old drug agency. It was just sort of seen as a sort of side show to, you know, the real stuff. And then after 9-11, you know, the barriers which separated law enforcement and intelligence operations start to sort of be broken down a bit. And they're also given um, through, to a certain extent, a legislative accident, vast new jurisdiction to go after people in places which are very, very far away from the United States and don't really touch on the United States at all. And so um, suddenly you have these, effectively, you know, these cops who have grown up doing what you'd expect, you know, sort of um, drug agents on the streets of places like Baltimore, Chicago, New York to be doing. They're given this massive amount of intelligence and a mandate to go after almost anyone they want. And so Jack uh, Kelly comes into that division of the DA at around that time. And that's how he starts to pursue these cases, you know, which was effectively one of the most audacious experiments in law enforcement history. They were arresting people like, you know, the famed Russian arms trafficker Victor Bout, you know, the um, Monza Alcazar, these almost like Bond villain-esque figures. And they were just sort of snatching them in hotel rooms in these audacious sting operations. And that's sort of how the world that Jack Kelly enters into when he starts pursuing this investigation. And the investigations that are being pursued, we've talked very much about these highly professional criminals, but one of the things that comes across also in the book is that uh, these gangsters aren't always super professional. I mean, particularly in the Italian chapters looking at the mafia, this this comes across clearly. Yes. I mean, I think that's been a really interesting part about researching the book and you know going through vast amounts of judicial material from Italy you know which effectively is you know the real blow by blow but not even blow by blow the sort of minute by minute lives of these people you know because they are being surveilled in a very sophisticated anti-mafia operation unbeknownst to them for several years and so you know you see when they're sort of ordering a coffee or sending a sort of annoyed message to their mistress or you know arguing with their wife or you know kind of talking about banal things like their car having broken down it's a sort of insight into this criminal world which you don't normally see when we have sort of a more broader narrative of a crime empire you know the way in which those effectively you know criminals, organized criminals are like everyone else. They live they're human most beings. of their, their human beings. Their, their daily lives are quite banal. But you also get to see in the operations, as you say, the sort of uh, the incompetence, the stupidity, the bad decisions, the emotions, you know, the, the way in which these or, or 
organizations are structured, there is a vast amount of um, incompetence. In but I think that you see that in a, whenever you look close enough at any organization, you know, in a in a in a very large multinational, you yep. know, in any any company, Even it's hundred percent legitimate. <laughs> yes, in hundred percent legitimate, you'll see a lot of incompetence and stupidity and egotism and you know emotion and bad decision making. And so I think it's just a reflection of a, a different type of dysfunctional organization. And very much in the chapter looking at the Syrian conflicts, you get the impression that that kind of conflict really is a magnifier for this kind of activity and for the overlap between the criminal, between the state run uh, and the professionalization of all of that. How, how does that drive that during the Syrian conflict? I mean, I think Syria is a fascinating case study in that regard because you, you know, it's become much more widely known now. But, you know, that's uh, there have been multiple reports of, you know, really excellent investigative journalism into the sort of narco state element of Syria um, now, you know, in the sort of post-Civil War period where you have a regime, you have people who are actually in power, who are, a, you know, it's a sovereign state who are engaging in organized criminal activity. And wherever you have, you know, failed states and you have, you know, porous borders and you have, you know, sanctions, you have people who need to find, you know, ways around, you are going to have a sort of boom in criminal activity. And you see this in sort of all of these uh, rogue regimes. So, you know, you, it might be North Korean hackers, you know, trying to steal Bitcoin. It might be, you know, Russian mercenaries, or it, it might be, you know, um, Syrian government officials engaged in, you know, shipping Captagon around the world. But um, I think it's a it's a it's a fascinating reflection of the place we are now. Now your background was very much as a foreign correspondent with the Financial Times over the last fifteen years. I just wonder what in particular got you into this topic. So I've been at the FT for uh, around fifteen years, and um, I've been lucky enough to do a number of jobs there. So I've been a foreign correspondent. I've also covered in several countries, but I've also covered high finance, and you know, covered you know hedge funds in New York, and you know, business in London, and 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 I've always been fascinated by applying the metrics that we would use to look at legitimate businesses to illegal businesses. Mm -hmm. And I've always been fascinated by transnational organized crime in terms of its sophistication and the elements which when you were, if you were analyzing a sort of uh, illegal enterprise, you would look at sort of, you know, its comparative advantages and the edge it has over competition, the barriers to entry into that, the sort of things like brands. And I, I find, I've always found that absolutely fascinating. And I happened to be working in Italy where I started to investigate a story which involved the Italian mafia making use of financial markets to launder their money. It showed to me, you know, that where all of these professional services which interact with the illicit economy every day um, have started to be used in a very big way by organized criminal groups. And, and a lot of my work since then has sort of focused on that, you know, so I looked at back to Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, you know, he was a fascinating figure who was on the one hand operating at that point a secret shadowy private army committing war crimes and atrocities across the world. And on the other hand, was hiring the top legal minds in London to sue journalists, yes. you know, and, in the and high being court. being assisted by the British government with a special license from the Treasury. Absolutely. So, you know, this is someone who was in this sort of fascinating duality where he is murdering journalists mm. 
on 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 with one hand and suing them, you know, through expensive and ju- barristers. Just for the avoidance the of doubt, what he was suing the journalists over was the accusation that he was running the Wagner Group, and this was less than two years ago. You know, he was still denying it. Yes, up until and the outbreak of the Ukraine conflict. Absolutely, as you know, it's a remarkable story. He he sort of came out as a sort of Scooby Doo moment where, after years of denying it, he sort of pulls off the mask and goes, "Ah ha ha! It was actually me all along." But you know, that it's fairly remarkable. You would never get a situation where, you know. A figure like I don't know Pablo Escobar or something, mm. or Chapo Guzman was hiring top barristers in London to say that they'd suffered huge emotional distress for being identified as a criminal. And so it felt to me that we were, you know, obviously we have always had organized crime in some form. We have had um, international organized crime, but I feel that it's uh, there's this sort of fascinating evolution. And you've done a huge amount of research for the book. I mean, it, it very much shows that there are, um, I think, over a hundred interviews and lots of court records and things like that you referenced. Um, how do you find the time? I mean, it was, um, it took several years, but you know, you end up speaking to very fascinating people and just trying to sort of, you know, build out a picture. It also in the book tracks some of these people over fairly long periods of their life Mm -hmm. where there are people who, like anyone else, they might do things when they're younger or they might believe things in their teens or in their 20s, which they come to either regret or they come to realize were, you know, mistaken in in in, in their later life. And I think one of the kind of unifying factors between all of the three characters in the book is that they are working in some form or another inside institutions. You know, maybe in the case of Jack Kelly, it's a much clearer institution. It's the DEA mm. where he's worked since his early 20s. Um, but, you know, in the case of Mustafa Badaradin, he is, um, you know, working with Hezbollah, you know, from effectively the birth of that movement to a moment in 2016 when a lot of its supporters were quite upset that it was going into Syria. This wasn't mm. the mission statement of the movement, you know, to to be killing fellow, um, uh, you know, Arabs for um, in the name of protecting a hated dictator. That wasn't what a lot of people wanted. And then in the case of um, Salvatore, the, the the values he has as a sort of um, as a made man in the mafia, they start to crumble at the end of the day when he's at his most desperate, when everything has gone terribly wrong. No one is there to protect him anymore. And the things, his values, the things that he thought would make his family great were, were the things which were important in life. They all crumble before him. And so um, I think that's sort of a really important aspect of this book. Thinking of that, you've mentioned the role of institutions on both sides of the law. And I wonder what makes people go in one particular direction? Is it the institution? Is it something innate within them, a a sense of morality? Or is it the world around them? Because the book is very grounded in places and the places that they are. I think I would have to say that all of these, the three men in the book, they're all born in the 1960s, you know, born at a similar time to each other. And if you look at the way their lives pan out, where they are born and the time they're born in does play a massive role in what they do with their lives. So, you know, just for example, if you were born, you know, Mustafa Badaradin became, you know, this sort of um, master bomb maker, notorious terrorist, you know, who lived for all these these decades in the shadows, but he wouldn't have had that opportunity were it not for the context he grew up in, in Lebanon in the 1980s. And the institutions, they flesh them out or mold them or transform them or what? 
I think it's you know people being in the right place at the right time, or maybe the wrong place at the wrong time. But uh, they, um, all of these people, in a way, are trying to exert control over their own destinies in some form or another. You know, there's a sort of audacity to both sides of this. There's an audacity to the idea that you can pull off a vast transatlantic cocaine deal, and you know you have to believe that you can control your own destiny in doing that. And there's also an audacity in kind of fighting or trying to fight international crime because it's an ocean of crime. There's just a vast amount of criminal activity happening every second of every hour of every day. And one of the things that ties all of these men together is that they do, to a certain extent, they play with these forces, these powerful forces. They invite them into their lives. And in the cases of some of them, they unleash these forces which eventually destroy them. But I, I very much think that the places they are they are born into um, plays an extremely important part in their destinies. Well, thank you very much, Miles. Miles' book, Chasing Shadows, a true story of drugs, war, and the secret world of international crime, is a page-turner of a read and is available from all good booksellers and some not-so-good ones as well. Thank you for joining us, dear listeners. We'll be back only too soon with another edition for your delectation. And if you enjoy the podcast, remember, you can support us on Patreon from just £3 a month. You'll be supporting our ever-expanding catalogue of shows, including The Bunker, Oh God, What Now?, Origin Story, Doomsday Watch, Rock and Roll Politics, Jam Tomorrow, We Are History, and our newest morning offering, Paper Cuts. Thanks for listening. Until next time. The Bunker was presented by Seth Tever. The producer is Liam Tate. Art direction by James Parrott. And the music is by Kenny Dickinson. Audio production was by me, Robin Lieber. Managing editor, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.